if you've been with us the last several weeks, you know we've been in the Psalms, and uh, the way we've been looking at the Psalms is by uh, really choosing a Psalm and seeing what emotion is it trying to show us. Uh, you know that uh, when we look at the Psalms, we really find the whole palette of human emotion, and uh, we are not—we are much more than our feelings. It's easy to live your life according to your feelings, uh, and the flip side of that isn't. Let's not do that and just live according to truth, like emotions don't matter at all. But it's how do we experience these emotions in a way that honors God? And that's what the Psalms show us. And so today, uh, we're looking at one we've not looked at yet. Uh, We're looking at guilt and shame. So uh, let's read the Psalm uh, that shows us guilt and shame. Psalm 51. We'll read the whole thing. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold... You delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices. And burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, the bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. Now Psalm 51 might be the most famous confession of sin that we see in the whole Bible. And it's really written out of an experience that David has uh, that might be the most famous sin in the Bible. See, David, while he was king, he was attracted to a woman named Bathsheba, and he committed adultery with her. She was a married woman. Her husband's name was Uriah, and Uriah was a soldier in David's army. And so David had the power to isolate Uriah in battle, making him very vulnerable to be killed, and he was. And so David, trying to cover up his tracks behind him, thought he was in the clear. Until one day, a prophet showed up at his doorstep. The prophet he knew very well. The prophet of Israel, Nathan. And Nathan tells him a story. Nathan tells him a story about two shepherds. One was very rich and had many, many sheep. The other was very poor and had but one sheep. And the climax of the story occurs when the rich man steals the one lamb from the poor man. And after David gives this punchline of the climax of the story, David responds with rage. And he says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And Nathan looks at David and he says, 
you are that man. And David is completely exposed. Months later, maybe years later, he pens what we just read in Psalm 51. That's where it comes from. That's the title of the psalm even. It gives us that circumstance. So as you talk about guilt and shame, what if I told you that there was a process by which you could go through if you screwed up your life and you could come out whole on the back end? Wouldn't you take it? Isn't that what you would want? Well, that's what we see in Psalm 51. And this whole process, the way out, is called repentance. You might say, what? All you have to do is say you're sorry? I mean, I feel like I do that with my kids all the time. Like I say, hey, tell so-and-so you're sorry. And, of course, the person who's been sinned against is like, it's not going to do any good. I don't want to just hear I'm sorry. Of course they don't. And if you say repentance is only about saying sorry, you've already shown you don't get what it is. And so what I want to do is use Psalm 51 to pull out what genuine repentance is, what repentance is that really leads to life. And the first thing, the first ingredient, the first characteristic of repentance that leads to life is found in verses 1 to 9. And that characteristic is just being truly sorry. Being truly sorry. Look, look at all the, all the ways in verses 1 to 9 that David acknowledges this sin. He says, blot out my transgressions, verse 1. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, verse 2. Cleanse me from my sin, verse 2. I know my transgressions, verse 3. My sin is ever before me, verse 3. I've sinned against you, verse 4. I've done evil in your sight, verse 4. I was brought forth in iniquity at birth, verse 5. Purge me with hyssop, verse 7. Wash me clean, verse 7. Hide your face from my sins, verse 9. Blot out all my iniquities, verse 9. Don't you get the point? Why would you say something nine times in prayer? It's because he's truly sorry for his sin. It's almost like David said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to confess my sin in as many different ways, with as many different metaphors as my language, the Hebrew language, will let me do. And I'm not going to have any filler language. No ums, no ands, no explanations. It's going to be compact and concentrated. It's going to be intense. And there you've got it. Twelve different ways in nine verses getting the exact same point across. That he's sorry. But how do you get to that place? How do you get to the place of being sorry? Well, that's where guilt and shame come in. When guilt and shame do their job, you get to the place of being sorry. But I don't know about you, maybe you just think guilt and shame are, shouldn't be a part of your life at all. So you repress them or you reject them. It would be pretty likely if you don't have a totally negative view of shame and guilt. It's possible you just see guilt and shame as by, byproducts of a poor self-esteem. In general, you just believe that you're not all that bad, but at times you do do bad things that you need to say you're sorry for. Occasionally you do things that aren't consistent with your true goodness. But what if guilt and shame are trying to tell you the truth? What if they're helping you see your sins so that wrongs can be righted and you can be restored in relationships? What if guilt and shame promote healing? What if guilt and shame promote growth? Wouldn't they be valuable then? See, when shame and guilt are operating well, what they do is they alert us that we fail to love God and neighbor properly. And when guilt and shame operate in that way, then we're led to repentance. But the problem is that guilt and shame, as we experience them, doesn't always operate so well. Sometimes we don't want to experience guilt and shame at all, so we've got our shields up to guilt and shame. When guilt and shame come after us, 
we're going to deflect it. And if that's you, you're probably quite defensive when you start feeling guilt and shame. If that's you, if you got your shield up, you usually find a way to explain your sin away. You relativize it and say, oh, everyone does it. You blame shift and say, oh, if you only knew my parents, you would understand. You minimize it and just say mistakes were made and you're pretty vague about it. And friends, that's really dangerous. If that's you, then Psalm 51 is totally new territory in your life. Because you're blind and you're prideful. Because you are guilty, but you don't feel guilty. So how can your conscience become healthy? How can your conscience get to a place where guilt and shame can lead you to repentance? Well, you've got to see what you're made up of. Look at verse 5. Look what David said he's made up of. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now David's not saying anything is wrong about his mother. What he's saying is that he's born a sinner. What he's saying is that sin is a part of his DNA as a human being. What he's saying is that there's never a time where he wasn't a sinner. And so when you see yourself as a sinner at a fundamental level, you begin to see that everything is wrong with you in your relationship with God. You begin to see that every human relationship that you're a part of that's not working up to stuff must be at least in part your responsibility. It has to be because you're a sinner. You'll begin to see that sin isn't a freak accident. You'll begin to see that sin is in character with who you are and sin will always be a part of who you are. There's a TV show called Broadchurch. Anybody seen it? Six of you? Awesome. And uh, this, this show is uh, it's on... It's a BBC thing, and there's two detectives. They're trying to uncover uh, a murder in the town of Broadchurch. And one of the two detectives is from Broadchurch, and she thinks of her hometown as this idyllic place, right? She can't imagine how anyone from Broadchurch could be a killer. And the other detective is from out of town, isn't from Broadchurch. And the two detectives are talking with one another, and the, the detective from Broadchurch is saying uh, she just can't imagine someone killing someone else. And the detective from out of town responds and says, Ma'am, anyone is capable of murder under the right circumstances. See, what the detective from Broadchurch is saying is the same thing that David's saying in verse 5. He's saying that you must not be in denial about your capacity to sin if you're really going to repent. But look at verse 4. See, not only do you have to see it's part of who you are, you've got to see who your sin is against. And in verse 4, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? I mean, he murdered Uriah, so for, he's for sure murdered against him. He for sure sinned against him, right? He had adultery with Bathsheba. Used his power against her. Surely he sinned against Bathsheba, right? But what David sees is they sinned against God. See, Martin Luther, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment is, uh, have no other gods before me. Put it positively, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Have no other gods before me. 
And Luther says that commandments 2 through 10 are just different ways of breaking the first commandment. And when you see that the chief end of your life is to love God, then you see that any time that you sin, it's not just breaking God's law, but that you're committing spiritual adultery. And when you see that you're committing spiritual adultery, you're saying that you are breaking God's heart. And when you see that you're breaking God's heart, repentance becomes not just about having your guilt and shame removed. It's about being restored in your relationship with God. So if you want repentance unto life, if you want repentance that's really going to matter, it's really going to help you if you screwed your life up. You've got to be truly sorry. But there's more than that. You want more than just removing your guilt. And that's what repentance wants to do. It wants to go much deeper than that. True repentance wants transformation too. That's the second part. Look at verses 10 and 11. In verses 10 and 11, David talks about having a clean heart and a right spirit. Which means that he just wants his motivations to change. Because he knows if his motivations change... He's going to begin to lead a righteous life. And when he mentions the Holy Spirit in verse 11, he's connecting it to his ability to lead the nation of Israel. He knows that without the Holy Spirit, he cannot carry out his duties as king in ways that please God. And that's what repentance always does. It wants more than a clear conscience. It wants more than relief from guilt and shame. So you need to go further than just relief to see real life change. See, healthy guilt and healthy shame are telling you that you, are un, that, you, you, that you have the ability to love God and neighbor. See, think about it. Uh, many of us never get here to repentance because what we do is we mistake self-loathing and self-condemnation as repentance. And you can see why, because self-loathing and self-condemnation do include sorrow. But healthy guilt and healthy shame, they know change is possible. Self-loathing and self-condemnation quit. Because you over-identify with your shame and your guilt. And you don't think that change is possible. So friends, hear me out here. You are not forever stuck in your sin. Repentance that leads to life pronounces freedom for you, not just from your past failures so that you can have a clear conscience, but what repentance does is give you freedom in the present to obey God afresh. Now, that change is going to be slow. It's going to be hard. But it's possible because gradual life change is a part of repentance. All right, so you got to be truly sorry you got to see transformation as a part of repentance. And the third part you see in verse 13. It goes further still. See, once you experience forgiveness, once you have your conscience cleaned, once you've experienced some life change, your faith is going to become contagious. You see it in verse 13. It says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. See, in some ways this is shocking. How can someone like David, such a flagrant sinner... Now be the poster boy for a holy God. I mean, wouldn't you expect God to find nice people from nice families with nice jobs and nice stuff to be his representatives, to be his teachers? Wouldn't you want people, if you were God, who had clean records to be your ambassadors? Well, apparently not. The ways of God are strange to us. 
I mean, who would expect that God wants sinners to return to him? Wouldn't he shove them off forever? I mean, who would expect that God would want to teach transgressors his ways? I don't. But God looks for sinners. He looks for transgressors. And he sends out those who've experienced repentance to teach them about his wondrous grace. Because people who are repenting can share from firsthand experience about how God casts one's sin as far as the east is from the west. God used people who have repented to teach others that God remembers their sin no more. And once you look at it from this angle, repentant sinners really are the perfect teachers. They've been gripped by the gospel. So if you've been gripped by grace, if you begin to experience this kind of repentance, you're in a great spot to start teaching. You certainly don't need a seminary degree. But here's the last part we see with repentance. We see that it sings. We see that it sings. The, pro- the progress has been made. Where, where David was at in verse 1, where he's just wanting uh, his sin to be cleansed, has gone further to being transformed, to being a teacher, and now he's singing. Verse 14 says he sings aloud. Verse 15 says his lips have been opened. Verse 15 says his mouth declares God's praise. But when you think about repentance, do you ever associate it with singing? Don't you always associate repentance with sorrow? But repentance is both. And when you see that God has embraced you, though your heart is ugly and hard, you will sing. You'll sing because you know that God's embrace of you has nothing to do with you. That God did for you what you could not do for yourself. That you couldn't break through your defensive conscience so that you might be sensitive to sin. You know that you couldn't obey your way out of sin. You know you couldn't rescue yourself from self-loathing and self-condemnation. But here's what happened. God came and God found you by sending Jesus. Now see, anytime you think of the grounds of your salvation, that they start in the first person, you've already missed it. When you start saying, well, I believed, I had faith, I was saved, I decided, all wrong answers. Now you've got to move from the first person to the third person. It's always he, he, he. It's never I, I, I. See, Alistair Begg, now, he's a Scottish preacher. He's in Cleveland at a Baptist church, and he tells this story. And uh, he's talking about the thief on the cross uh, that next to Jesus. And when he's talking about the thief on the cross, he's saying, you know, this guy's, uh, he, he, he's never been in a Bible study before. This guy's never been baptized. He's never been a church member. And Alistair Begg says, man, I can't wait to talk to this guy. <laughs> And so he starts imagining the conversation that the thief on the cross has with the angel in heaven. And the angel in heaven looks at the thief on the cross and says, why are you here? The thief on the cross goes, I don't, I don't know. Not real sure. No, no, I, I mean, wh- why are you here? I told you, I don't know. The angel's dumped down and says, the angel goes, gets a supervisor, brings a supervisor in, and the supervisor sits down and says, all right, I need to get something clear. Where are you on the doctrine of justification by faith? The thief looks at him like, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, how about the doctrine of Scripture? I don't know. Well, then why are you here? 
the thief on the cross is a guy in the middle cross that I could come. See, that's the only answer you and I have. That is our only hope. Because what the devil's going to do, he's going to come along and he's going to remind you of all your screw-ups. The devil's going to come along and he's going to say that since you don't have much assurance or because you can't remember the exact time and place of your conversion or because you can't stay sober or because you have a particularly rogue set of sinful desires that there's no way that you could be a Christian. And when that happens, you can just say to the devil, devil, you're right. I am that bad and I'm actually worse. Those are all reasons for me not to stand before a holy God. But I'm not looking at those as the grounds or the basis of my salvation. I'm looking at another. And his name is Jesus. He lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I should have died. He rose again from the grave. And now I have to. You will have no luck plucking me from the loving grip of my father. So leave me alone. See, in Jesus, you're looking beyond your own hopelessness. You're gazing at the strength and love of someone else who's capable of pulling you out of your pride and condemnation. Did you see what David said in verse 1? David said, it's according to your steadfast love. It's according to your abundant mercy that you're going to blot out my transgressions. It's got nothing to do with me and everything to do with him. So brothers and sisters, for all our unworthiness, we still belong. God has sought you out. He's found you. He's claimed you as his own. And let that give you assurance this morning. Come to him in repentance. Let a healthy guilt and shame bring you to him and know that he's never turned away a broken and contrite heart. You'll find repentance as a far better alternative with dealing with your sin than blame shifting, than self-loathing, or from hiding. So come and be clean this day. One final word. you got to see yourself in community for this whole project of repentance. I'm sure we saw community and that he's teaching others in verse 13. But think back to Nathan. God didn't choose to convict David privately about his sin, did he? What God did is he chose a prophet who confronted him, which ultimately led to David's repentance. And that's hard for us for lots of reasons, isn't it? No person, regardless of culture and time, likes being confronted with their sin. But in our particular place and time, we're anti-authority and we're highly individualistic. The only category we have with being confronted by God is privately. So friends, if someone does confront you, even if it's clumsy, it's worth listening to. They've taken great risks to confront you. And there's probably at least a nugget within that confrontation that's valid, that might bring healthy guilt and shame to you so that you might repent and change, and in the end, sing. See, what Nathan had in mind for David was the singing, right? He didn't want to just make him feel bad. He wanted to make him sing because he knew that grace was possible for him. The other part of seeing yourself in community is that if you are convicted, if you have been confronted by God privately apart from someone else, you can still hide. And the way you come clean with God might just be 
by going to another person. See, James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. I know it sounds scary. (laughs) But find someone who will listen. Find someone who's going to remind you the gospel of grace. And on the other side of that confession might just be the healing and the freedom that you've been longing for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, if David can sing... When he sinned uh, that wildly, uh, we can sing too. So Lord, I pray that uh, you would take us there, uh, even if it's today or in a month or in a year. That's where we want to be. Teach us to repent. In Jesus' name, amen.